God, as we look into your word this morning, give us a spirit of inward reflection. Help us, Lord, to wrestle. To wrestle as we see what's transpiring in this narrative and to see, Lord, where in our lives we're in need of your gospel to shape us, to shape us toward a response that would characterize your grace and your mercy and your love for us. So help us as we wrestle through these things this morning. Give us faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so both when we preached through Revelation and now working our way through John, one of the primary struggles that I've heard, struggles from people who who approach me after the sermon during Q&A, personal Q&A, or struggles someone has when they come to me for coffee during the week, specifically related to these sermons is through our text, is, is this, the struggle that has to do with the black and white nature of John's writing. You know, John writes in this very black and white way. We've discussed it at great length, but it has to do with John's particular lack of gray area. You know, as he writes, he essentially keeps making this argument, and we're going to we're going to hear it more and more. We're going to talk about it again. It won't be the last time, but you're either in or out. You believe or you don't. A clear statement of distinction. No blurring of the lines. Okay, so in Revelation, it was in even starker terms. Part of that is because it's apocalyptic literature, and that's one of the unique character, characteristics of apocalyptic literature is that it tends to be more black and white. But part of it is, look, this is just how John writes also. And so we remember, and something we repeated throughout Revelation, and some of you are like, I'm so glad we're done with Revelation so Jeremy doesn't say this over and over, and here we are. But, you know, you're either sealed by God or marked by the beast. You're either a citizen of heaven or an earth dweller of the new Jerusalem or of Babylon, right? So you get the point, and there's more and more of these kinds of like, black and white. You're either in or you're out. You're either saved or you're not. And those kinds of themes hit us right away in chapter one of John's gospel. They don't go away. You're either in darkness or in light. I mean, think of the starkness of the terms that are used. Darkness or light, either of this world or of the word. And the reason this can be distressing for people, and I really do understand, the reason it can feel distressing is that it can feel unmerciful. Like it can feel like, look, I'm just interested, you know, to learn about what the Bible teaches. So doesn't this black and white stuff kind of push me away, push us away? Isn't it unmerciful? And yet, listen, mercy is the reason it's included. It's the central reason why it's included. There's no riding the fence on this one. There can't be. There can't be. There's simply too much at stake, right? And so there there comes a point in all of our lives where we can no longer ride the fence. And some of them are like in these small, meaningless ways. Some of them are in very significant ways. So like in a small, meaningless way, right? So so I'm at this stage of my life as a 43-year-old where... um, you know, I, I uh, come to the text on a Sunday morning and I'm reading through it. And man, I'm just struggling to read. And I'm like, what is going on with my eyes? You know, um, 
And you know, you talk to people about it, it's, I think there's something wrong. And they're like, eh, there is, you're getting old. Um, <laughs> but you know, my vision is just good enough to get away with it. And then I start reading the membership covenant, right? And I'm like, oh no, this could, be, this could get choppy, right? So, but you know, there's no riding the fence on this for me. I could, I could continue to do that, but it, trust me, it's not going to be for anyone's good. And so we have this kind of like daily experience of fence riding where we're trying to have our cake and eat it too, and it's not for our good. But man, that's so insignificant as it relates to like riding the fence in broader cultural terms. So like, let's, let's pivot to... to where this is extremely meaningful, the reality is there comes a point at which our response to various truths will always come to a head in the culture in which we live. So like, there are a lot of moments in history when this has happened. And one that comes to mind in a specific kind of manifestation would be World War II and Nazi Germany. You know, um, one of my favorite movies is Valkyrie story of Colonel Klaus von Stauffenberg and the joint effort to fight the Nazis from within Germany. So these were Germans fighting the Nazis from within Germany. These were Germans who said, Nazi Germany is not Germany. Nazi Germany is not German. And we can't allow the world to think that this is what Germany is. There's a sacred Germany, a Germany that comes before this, a Germany that is counter this, and that does not stand for the evil and the hatred and the anti-Semitism that's run rampant from within Nazism. And so they fought them. And it came to mind this week because, you know, throughout Valkyrie, from the very beginning, one of the ways that Stauffenberg helps people realize the situation that they're in, which is, of course, there are a great many people who have their head in the sand. You know, they know what's going on, and they don't want to touch it. They don't want to talk about it, because it's easier not to. And so the way he wakes them from that is to speak in these kind of black and white terms. There's no riding the fence on this. There's simply too much at stake. So there's a couple of quotes here. In the beginning of the movie, Stauffenberg is talking to this general about how to save lives in the midst of a war that's evil, save German men who aren't really fighting for these things. They're fighting out of necessity. They'll be shot dead if they don't kind of thing. And so he says, he says, General, you can serve Germany or the Fuhrer, not both. You have to make a choice. And so then later on in the film, in a heated discussion, and this really cuts more to the point, in a heated discussion with a member of a Nazi, the Nazi regime who's been having a lot of second thoughts about what's happening. He's seeing the, the evil that's being wrought against the Jewish people by Hitler the man says to Stauffenberg, for the last time, don't push me to make a decision. Right? And this is kind of the idea. He wants to ride the fence. He knows it's evil and wicked. He doesn't want to stick his head out. Don't push me to make a decision. And Stauffenberg says, I don't have a choice. It's clear now. This is going to hap happen. Action is inevitable, as are the consequences. When they come for me, I'll do everything I can to hide what you knew and when you knew it. But don't delude yourself. You were involved in a crime against your country long before you met me. There still may be time to redeem yourself. Only God can judge us now. You know, and these are powerful scenes because the, the, the black and white language is used to kind of rouse maybe disinterest or fear. It reminds me of another story that came out of World War II in which a German pastor was behind bars for speaking out against Hitler and against the anti-Semitism. And, you know, this was early in the conflict, but it wasn't so early that people didn't know what was happening. Jewish people were being ripped out of their homes, sent on trains to concentration camps, right? So, 
He's German pastors behind bars, and he's a part of this network of clergymen. Like, I'm a part of various networks here in the EFCA, so it's so a network with other pastors. They're good friends of mine, right? So he's a part of a network. They're all good friends of his, and the, the leader of, of this clergy network came to see this pastor during visiting hours and sat across from him, and he said, you know, through the bars, you can see this reverend, his, his shoulders hunched, his, his body leaned over in prayer, and this prominent member of the clergy says, Reverend, come now. What are you doing on the other side of those bars? And the jailed pastor looks back and replies, Reverend, I was about to ask you the same question. Right? These kinds of moments of response in which, like, there's no riding the fence here. There's simply too much at stake. They've happened throughout history. And they're seen centrally in our text this morning because they're seen centrally in humanity's response to the person of Jesus. Like, throughout, throughout the text of John, we've, we've been asking the question, as, as I think we should be doing, and as I think evangelists often do, with those who don't know Jesus in particular, but we say like, hey, what are you going to do with the person of Jesus? Centrally, what do you do with Jesus? Like, you can say you don't believe in Christianity. You can say that you reject the central tenets of Christianity, all of those things. But at the end of the day, you've got to do something about Jesus. And I totally and wholeheartedly agree. But this question, what do you do with Jesus, it's not just a thought experiment. It's not just some kind of like idealistic question or ivory tower thing. It's, it's not hypothetical. It actually has deep and meaningful ramifications, implications. And we see that this morning, right? Like, so how must we respond? But in this morning's text, that response now starts getting real, okay? We see that there's no fence riding in our response to Jesus. There can't be. And we see that there's too much at stake as we consider who Jesus is and what it is that he's come to do. Okay, so we see this through as is our habit six scenes in the narrative. And again, the point of this is to allow the narrative, to, you know, this is a means of telling the narrative, telling the events. This is what's happening, the flow of the events in this particular story, beginning in verses 45 to 46. So look there with me. And by the way, one of the reasons why I don't put the verses up here is because I think it's really good and meaningful, even for our study throughout the week, for our, for our Faces to be on the pages of our Bibles, okay? So if you don't have one, uh, like Art said, we have copies of the Gospel according to John. Grab one. Take it home with you, okay? It's yours. But, but let's get our faces there. It helps our cognitive remembrance of the passage, okay? So, verses 45 to 46. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had, do had done. So here we see, firstly... Exactly what we were describing in the introduction. And we see it right out of the gate. This is what we'll call the quandary in the midst of the people. So a quandary is like a dilemma. You're forced between a choice. You're forced into a decision. That's what's happening here. There's a quandary. So increasingly over the last few chapters, we've seen these two realities. First of all, there's always this division in the midst of the people. The teaching of Jesus continues to result in a division. 
right? And there was a division among them, and there was a division among them. We see that over and over. But now that division is starting to have massive implications related to, to how they live, related to what it looks like to live in the midst of a first century Jewish culture. Because do you remember that the Pharisees have already, in John's account up to this point, put people out of the temple, out of the synagogue, banished the blind man, excommunicated him, threatening to excommunicate his parents for speaking the truth related to Jesus. That's all. I mean, the guy got healed. You know, he was blind. He got healed. He told them he, he was healed and who healed them? And he was put out of the temple. This had real ramifications. We've also seen people who approach the religious leaders fearfully, not willing to say much of anything at all, deferring all questions, even when they know the answers, because they know that speaking any truth about Jesus will have consequences. They know what's happening in Jerusalem, right? There's too much knowledge about what the religious leaders are trying to do to Jesus to approach with any kind of truthfulness. And so, listen, we see here there are real social and cultural consequences here in these chapters for making public affirmations of faith in Jesus as Messiah. And John's writing this to a, a population of people, these Jewish seekers and God-fearing Greeks who are in the synagogue and they want to know, like, tell me more about this Jesus. Is he Messiah? But he also knows that asking too many questions in these synagogues, what's it doing? It's putting them in danger of being put out. I mean, these are, this is their community. It's their family. It's their neighbors. And they're in real threat of being completely just put out. So there's a real social, cultural consequence here in these chapters, there's real social, cultural consequence for the readers of that book. And so some people hear what Jesus has to say in this. So where do we see it? Like, look, at verse 45. Some people hear what he has to say. They see what he's done. The signs he's put on display, specifically the raising of Lazarus. And the text says they believed in him. We can't be totally sure the nature of this belief, the nature of this faith. It could be, you know, the spurious kind of faith that demands a sign. But, but I, I don't know. It's positioned as pretty positive because it's contrasted with a very, I think, negative response. Um, the way it's positioned contrasts it versus over against the others because others, perhaps out of fear of the consequences, perhaps uh, sharing the growing animosity against Jesus that their religious leaders have so obviously displayed up to this point. What does the text say? They went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus has done. Now, we might be tempted to look at that and say, Jeremy, how do I know that that isn't an attempt to go to the Pharisees and say, look, let's, let's calm down. Look at what Jesus just did. He raised someone from the dead. Listen, the context just, I don't think, gives us room for that. And the reason is, up to this point, what have we seen? We've seen that the Jews in Jerusalem know full well what the religious leaders want to do. They've said like, oh man, Jesus is still speaking like this. This is, what, this is why they want to put him to death. And then what does that crowd want to do when he doubles down and continues to say things that make him equal with God? They try to seize him, right? So they know what, what the religious leaders are going to do. The context here more than suggests nefarious motives on the part of the reporters. So um, given what we already know in this text, uh, it's just too far-fetched that they have positive motives. So as Osborne reminds us, this morning he says, Jesus' miraculous signs always galvanize the crowds. That's what we're seeing. Galvanizing of the crowds and force them to take sides. Faith decision is at the heart of John's gospel. Jesus encounters every person at the gut level and they're 
listen, there are no neutral people in John, right? This black and white idea. In our time, Osborne continues, we must welcome the seekers, welcome, but also warn. We must welcome the seekers, but also warn them that so long as they attempt to remain interested but neutral, they are actually in the process of rejecting Christ. Why is this the case? Because that reality that we looked at just a minute ago, you know, like, that reality that there are real, real and social consequences for making public affirmations of faith in the word, in the word of Jesus, saying that Jesus' word is true, the fact that that comes with very real and social cultural consequences, that's not merely a first century phenomenon, you know? It's not merely a phenomenon for the people who are living with Jesus. It's not merely a phenomenon for John's readers. It's just not, you know? And so listen, the desire to stay above it, the desire to maintain neutrality in order to avoid those consequences, that's also not a first century phenomenon. That's something that we can do today. We can have a very Midwestern response of just like, hear no evil, see no evil. You know, like, oh, it's not going to, you know, yeah, sure, that happened in the first century, but I'm not going to really have to make any kinds of uh, declarations that would put my, my personal reputation in any kind of jeopardy. Like, look, evidence of this is all around us. It's been the case in every age, every single age. It's not new, and it will continue to be so. Um, I read this quote to the men in our study through 1 John, because as John writes his epistle, so this is like very Johannine, it's like Revelation, the gospel according to John, and now our men are seeing it in his epistle, that same kind of stark language, a clear delineation between living according to the world, living in darkness, you know, and living according to the word, the light. Okay, and, and while it's very possible to live according to the world and be celebrated in this life, if we live according to the word, it comes with sometimes real consequences, sometimes very immediate consequences to our reputation, like reputational consequences, consequences for our social lives, consequences for our businesses. It does. It, it can damage the way that people think of us in this World Historian uh, and theologian Carl Truman wrote the following. I-, I want you to bear in mind, he wrote this in 2010. And I think this is helpful for us because I think it, it illustrates the point that for those of us who think this is some other age, we need to realize that that's not the case. So he says, the beautiful young things of the Reformed Renaissance have a hard choice to make in the next decade. So writing in 2010, this is coming out of like a Reformed Renaissance. There are a lot of young people, called it the Young Restless Reformed Movement, a lot of young people who are drawn back to God's word as primary authority. It was a good thing, a beautiful thing. Man, in 2009, I went to a Gospel Coalition conference where the room was absolutely packed out with people in their 20s and 30s with this just renewed focus on the word, singing hymns to the Lord. I mean, like, it was an incredible experience of, like, look around you, look what the Spirit is doing, and I believe that that's true. But, but Truman wanted to say right out of the gate, like, because he was noticing some things, he was observing some things. He says, there's going to be a hard choice, young, restless, reformed, 
in the next decade. He says, you really do only kid yourself if you think you can be an orthodox Christian and at the same time be cool enough to cut it in the wider world. I think one of the general uh, descriptions of that young, restless, reformed movement was there was kind of a, not kind of a cool factor, like everybody had the beards and the tattoos and the skinny jeans and I don't know, I don't know what's cool. But, um, and none of those things are bad, right? But like that was kind of like the, the vibe. And, and there, were, there were times that I went to church planting conferences. I hadn't planted yet. I had a deep interest in planting. And I'd go to church planting conferences, and it was like, man, like, um, am I at a fashion show? You know, right? So, like, there was this, there was our, Truman's observing that here. He says, like, you're kidding yourself. If you think you can be an Orthodox Christian, at the same time, be cool enough to cut it in the wider world. So he continues. He says, frankly, in a couple of years, and I want to unpack this with you, he says, it will not matter how much urban ink you sport how much fair trade coffee you drink, how many craft brews you can name, how many art house movies you can find that redeemer figure in, or how much money you divert from gospel preaching to social justice. Maintaining biblical sexual ethics will be the equivalent in our culture of being a white supremacist. 2010. What's he not saying? He's not saying, just to back up, he's not saying sporting urban ink is, is wrong. You know, he's not saying... Uh, it's wrong to go to coffee houses and pubs and engage with culture there, as we've done at Gospel Life Church, attempting to find places where we can speak to people about Christ where they're not feeling uh, maybe so uncomfortable. It's not saying that we shouldn't engage film, have conversations. In fact, on Thursday night at Gospel Life Church, we had film and discussion. King Richard, it was great. We're going to do it again, and you should come. Um, so he's not saying we shouldn't engage with culture. He's not saying that we shouldn't spend money on the poor and the needy and the marginalized and give our resources to that effort. That's a, we're instructed to do those things. What he's saying is, none of those things, if, you, if, you, if we think that doing any of those things will then solve the problem of our rep reputation, you know, being damaged by the gospel. If we think that those things will make us cool or the surrounding world will see us as like, oh, they're all right. We're kidding ourselves. That's what, that's what his argument is. He says maintaining biblical sexual ethics will be the equivalent in our culture of being a white supremacist. And I can tell you, 13 years later, that equivalency has been made time and time and time again. He was right. He says in a couple of years. Okay, that was his, frankly, in a couple of years. That's how he started. Not only did he nail this prediction, but just two years later, it started to, to be um, real-time evidence. Louis Giglio the Christian founder of an organization aimed at ending modern slavery and sex trafficking, did so much good work in our time, known popularly as the End It Movement. He was um, asked to pray at the presidential inauguration. And then a single sermon, a single sermon resurfaced of him, very, by the way, tactfully and lovingly. There was no yelling. There was no, like, hateful profanity, a very tactful and loving sermon in which he taught what Christians have always believed for 2,000 years about sexual ethics resurfaced, and one single sermon in which he said what was true, that what Christians always believed, in the midst of three decades of work fighting to end slavery in our time around the globe, and he was immediately branded a bigot said he had no place in public discourse, someone as hateful as him for having those views. The public backlash grew so great that, that it forced him, it forced him to step out. 
This is the reality of our cultural moment. Okay, this is the quandary. It's the reality of where we're at with this. And as I've said before, it's not simply about sex ethics. That's, this isn't like an obsession with sex, which is always kind of the counter. Why are Christians always... No, listen. As I've said before, it's about the question, whose word? That's, that's the question. And regardless of what the issue was, if that issue was being... If, if something the scriptures speak clearly about was being challenged that's where the dust-up would occur because that's where the dust-up would need to occur because that's where Christians would take their stand. And by dust-up, we mean a loving, tactful, uh, but, but clear and strong statement of truth, you know, like Giglio did. All right? So, um, whose word, or as John would ask, the world or the word? In this we see that the question that we've been confronted with throughout John's account, what are we to do with Jesus, eventually has deep ramifications. And, you know, it gets hard. It really does. But, but th- it has deep implications for us here in Minnesota. It does. Standing for truth, what it looks like to do that, what it looks like to say, I'm a, an Orthodox Christian believer. In other words, I believe that what the Bible says is true. It, it does come with this kind of ramification in our time. And this is why John becomes so black and white in his writings, and it's why it's so merciful for him to be so black and white. He knows that eventually it leads to a response with real and lasting consequences, a response from which there can be no right and defense. And we might ask at the front end, well, how am I ever supposed to choose rightly in that quandary? Well, well, we're going to get there, right? Because like, I don't think we can. So I can't stop the sermon now. So this quandary leads now secondly to the question from religious leaders. The question, look at verses 47 and 48 with me. Put your eyes on the text. So the chief priests And the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So people approach the Pharisees. And the Pharisees don't have power to act on their own accord. They're in need of what's known as the Sanhedrin. That was the council, the Sanhedrin. And and so, so to understand the way this worked... The Sanhedrin functioned essentially as like all three forms of government rolled into one. On the the one hand, it was a judiciary. Primarily, really, the role of the Sanhedrin was the Supreme Court of the time, the Jewish Supreme Court. But it was also a legislation. It was a legislative body. It formed and decided matters of law. But it also had an executive, the high priest. And the high priest was tasked with speaking with a certain amount of authority And typically during the time of Jesus, before the time of Jesus, after, but during this first century, the high priest really got what he wanted. It was a very powerful, powerful executive position. He really knew what buttons to push, okay? Um, And so collectively, they asked the question at the Sanhedrin, what are we to do? Which has the strong sense of like, probably the best way to translate that into our vernacular is what what are we even doing here? What are we... What are we accomplishing here with how we've approached Jesus up to this point? And so the idea that they have here is like, look, it's not working, and it's not working specifically because Jesus is out there continually evading arrest, and we've tried to arrest him, and he's not cooperating. And so then he's out there, and he's performing all these signs from which the only explanation thus far has been that he's from God. You know, the blind are seeing, the sick are healed, the dead are raised uh, throughout the Old Testament, These are things that are only attributed to the work of the Lord, right? 
Um, and so all of that's happening. The more he remains out there, the more signs and wonders, the more authority that he speaks with, the more popular he becomes, the more people believe in him. And it's particularly troubling because messianic fever is at a, it's at a high, pe- high pitch, right? So fever pitch, a powder keg ready to explode. Jesus is the match that's about to light the whole thing up. So this is their perspective. But notice in this argument that they really just assume They assume that Jesus actually is doing this stuff. They assume that he actually did raise someone from the dead. They're not saying like, well, this is smoke and mirrors. I have a cousin who did something like this once, like before a group of people. I'm doubting this, calling it into question. No, they very much assume Jesus is working in this way. He performed all these signs. The only explanation has been that he's from God. And they're kind of cornered. You're cornered in the reality of what that means. But that doesn't at all change. Like, people came to him and they said what happened, and it doesn't at all change their perception of Jesus. All they can think about are the consequences of what it would mean for them and for their power. Specifically, what the Romans would take, look at the text, from them. Not what the Romans would do to the people primarily, that's kind of like a happy byproduct, but like, what it would mean for them. It says, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation, i.e. our authority. Our authority. Carson writes this. He says, they are prompted less by dispassionate concern for the well-being of the nation than for their own positions of power and prestige. That's what they think is on the line here. And what does this show us? I think it shows us, you know, we see in this questioning that this question of what do you do with Jesus that has deep ramifications, that draws lines upon which there really can't be any riding on the fence, right? It shows us that the way we respond to that doesn't always have to do with its perceived truthfulness. You know, we can hear about Jesus. We can hear about, like, evidences for the resurrection. We can hear about things that might, like, we can, we can read the word of God. We can see that we don't actually see, we don't actually have reasons to doubt the manuscript evidence of the first century. We can come to it with a lot of facts. And yet still, on the basis of those things, not in any way like push back on the claims of Jesus himself, but instead respond on the basis of like what it means for my situation. It can be true, but if, if it's going to like topple my situation, if it's going to somehow make something about my life uncomfortable, if it's going to take away something that's good, which is, I think, at, at a baseline, why, why we reject Jesus. Like, honestly, I think a, a lot of times people deconstruct their faith and walk away, not because they've uncovered or unearthed some manuscript in the Judaic wilderness, not because they've come to more evidence that God doesn't exist. It's because they want to do whatever they want. Yeah, they're they're, they're evaluating the response on the basis of like, what does it mean for me? What does it mean for my position, for my power, for my prestige, for my ability to be my own authority? All those things, right? So this is where we move. Question from the religious leaders brings about thirdly, a quarrel from Caiaphas. A quarrel from Caiaphas, the high priest of the time, the executive. This is the guy who really got his way during the time of Jesus, and he has a bone to pick with them. Verse 49, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. You know nothing at all. So in these next two scenes, we're really going to see the corruption of the human heart. Because, okay, so from history we know that this guy Caiaphas, he was high priest, he was appointed high priest, something like 18, yeah, 18 AD. And he remained in office until 36 AD. And in 36 AD, so he was, he was in office about 15 years prior 
to, to the events that are happening in this narrative. He'll be in office for about three more years, roughly, approximately. And he was actually removed from office the same year that Pontius Pilate is removed from office. And a lot of the reasons have to do with the, the events of the narrative that we're about to read. You know, they're connected with, with what's going on here. So when the text says, who was the high priest that year, I just want to clarify, it doesn't mean he had a one-year term. It doesn't. It's just saying Caiaphas was still in charge. He, be, he was in charge in 18. He left in 36, but he was still in charge specifically this year, this year where there's like so much on the line, the year all of this went down. So this particular high priest, what is it saying? It's saying he, he, he's coming with a lot of clout. He has years of experience dominating the Sanhedrin. He's like a politician who's been in Washington for 30 years, knows all the people to talk to, knows what buttons to push, knows what doesn't work, and knows how to get his way. That's kind of what Caiaphas is, except a lot more powerful. And the words he speaks, you know nothing at all, is kind of an idiom. And I think the, kind of the closest to exact we would have for it in our vernacular would be, you don't know what you're talking about. That's what he's saying. You, you guys, you don't know what you're talking about. Caiaphas is, is coming down on him. He detects, here's why. He detects in their questioning a hesitancy to do what he perceives is needed related to Jesus. He perceives that maybe they don't have the stomach for what he thinks needs to happen. Maybe they don't have the spine. And we see that now as we move from the quarrel to now, fourthly, the quote that foreshadows the cross. There's a quote from Caiaphas, something that Caiaphas speaks out that foreshadows what's about to happen. So what's the nature of the quarrel? Verse 50 tells us, nor do you understand that, and here it is, it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Or really, this is what he's saying. You don't understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people than the whole nation perish. It's one or the other. Either the nation perishes or this one man perishes. So you take your pick. Do you want the whole nation to perish? Do you want to lose your position and power and authority? Well, then let them live. But if you want the nation to be saved so that you can maintain that, well, he needs to die. Okay, so now, now we see all kinds of gaps between what Caiaphas means by this and then what really happens. But we also see a lot of truth between what Caiaphas says and what really happens. So let me walk through this. Caiaphas, what he meant by this was that Jesus had to die in order for the Sanhedrin to have their power and prestige intact, to, to, to not have it ripped from them. In other words, if they demonstrate to Rome, you know, if they come to the Romans and they say, we are willing to hand you our troublemakers, to hand you our Messiah figures. Like when somebody comes up and like, even if they're, guys, even if they're raising the dead, healing the blind, healing the lame, things that the Old Testament points to is particularly messianic. And, and the people are embracing them in these ways and they're speaking with authority in life. We will hand them to you, hand them over to you. And that certainly when the Romans see our willingness to do that, even then, then they, they'll, uh, Leave, leave our power intact, right? In order to keep the peace, they'll support the Sanhedrin as the subservient authority of Rome. And the added benefit, of course, is that the nation shouldn't perish, okay? But, but what actually transpires is Jesus does indeed go to the cross and the Romans still invade Jerusalem, topple the temple. The nation indeed perishes, at least as it was known and operated up to this point. The, okay, so they lose, they lose their place, they lose their nation, at the same time, there's another truer sense in which Jesus died so that the nation could live, right? And this is where it's 
it's crazy. But Caiaphas uses language that's clearly substitutionary in nature. You guys, he died, listen, he died for the people so that the people would not perish. He perished so that the people would not perish. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have eternal life. Why? Because he perished for them. So there's this like, what Christians call penal substitution in his language. That, that Jesus, he took on the penalty that humanity deserved so that humanity wouldn't have to bear that penalty and they wouldn't have to perish. They wouldn't have to die. All right? And of course, Caiaphas doesn't mean it at all in that Christian sense of penal substitution. Jesus taking our place at the cross that we might have life with God. But even though he didn't intend to say it, he speaks better than he knows. Look at verses 51 to 52 where we elaborate on this foreshadowing quote, he did not say this of his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. God was calling a people to himself from every nation through the work of Jesus. And Jesus would die so that that people would be saved and secured for all time. That they might not have to die. That they wouldn't ever perish. Like, so, so how does Caiaphas say this? It says that he prophesied. Well, this isn't a situation like Balaam where God kind of forced someone to say something. You know, where he speaks through them like a puppet. It's not like a Harry Potter moment where the eyes go wide and they just speak this word that they don't really realize that they're saying. Like, this is not what's happening. And there are some who, I think, wrongly see it that way. What's meant by he prophesied is when he spoke, God was speaking too, even though they didn't intend the same meaning. Caiaphas does not intend the same meaning. But listen, God used Caiaphas's evil, rebellious remarks to speak out gospel truth, to prophesy gospel truth. God is in control of everything. It's not like the circumstances outside of what he desires to do. And you know, it's true. The high priest routinely dominated the Sanhedrin, typically getting what he wanted, so it shouldn't surprise us. This quote from Caiaphas brings about, fifthly, a quorum. You guys keep wondering if I'm going to keep coming up with QUs. A quorum to kill Jesus. There's a decision that's made. Now we know quorum's a good word for it because we know that there are those who are Pharisees during this time who have reservations. And we're going to see that actually even increasingly in this gospel account. Okay, but nevertheless, there's a majority here. The, the vast majority, the leanings of the Sanhedrin together collectively is to kill Jesus. Verse 53, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. The word choice here is like a resolution. That's what is meant by plan. It's a decision. The matter is decided. They've made a determination that Jesus would be killed. And, and like I said, in these last two, in these last three really, we see like the corruption of the human heart. Okay, because like, listen, here we see why Jesus' trial is going to take the shape that it takes. A, a lot of like ink has been spilled talking a lot about how like it was a corrupt trial from the very beginning. Well, you better believe it was. You know, and you don't even need evidences, we have them, but you don't need evidences in the passion narratives to see how corrupt the trial really was. All you need to see is what we see right here. You know, he isn't arrested, they say why he's going to be arrested. He isn't arrested to stand trial and give an account. So from that day forward, they made plans to put him to death, right? So like, they're not bringing him in 
to hear from him that they might decide whether he's innocent or guilty. The matter's been decided. He'll be arrested in order to be found guilty. Uh, He's been arrested in order to be killed, so this would be the equivalent of, I want you to imagine it with me, the judge, the lead prosecutor, the defense attorney, and the chief of police having a meeting to arrest someone and give them the chair. Like, yeah, they're going to stand trial, whatever, but we're all in this together. The matter's already been decided. That's the level of corruption. But it shouldn't surprise us because this is the corruption of the human heart. This is why our natural tendency is to run from God, to see him as an enemy, to, to stand against his word. And it's the situation that we're all in. And that's what, that's what makes the quandary so devastating because the reality is, um, look, if there's a choice to be made, if there's a dilemma and all of humanity has to take sides, do you want to know what side we're going to take every day of the week? We're going to take the side to reject Christ. We're going to take the side to run to the Pharisees. We're going to take the side to, as, as John would say in Revelation, like let the mountains fall down upon us rather than be with the Lamb for all eternity. That's the natural state of our hearts. So then the question is, what's to be done about it? And that's where we move from the quorum to kill Jesus, to finally the quiet before the storm. Probably my least favorite of the QU words, but listen. Um, there is a quiet here. This happens immediately before Passover. Jesus is on his way to the cross. So listen, listen. Verse 54, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and he stayed there with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And many went up from the country of Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the, to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Right? So the people in Jerusalem, they've known all along and they continue to know the rumor mill is in full effect. Jesus is going to be arrested. He's going to be killed. People are anticipating that this is about to happen if Jesus does indeed show up. You know, but, but the point here is to say, like, we move directly in the midst of this quiet. So right before what's about to go down, Jesus just steps away for a quiet moment. And it's in the midst of this that we go directly from the statement. It's almost like a reflection. A statement from Caiaphas about Jesus dying that his people might not perish. And the decision to therefore kill him. To then this statement, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. I want you to think about that. Like the Passover, this feast, at which the Jewish people remembered the substitutionary death of a lamb. The blood of the lamb spread on the doorpost. Why? So that the people might live. The lamb died that the nation would not perish. And here we have Jesus quietly staying with the disciples in the midst of the plot to kill him, having set his face to do what is about to take place in Jerusalem. And we'll look at that. You know, like two chapters, two, two Sundays from now, you know, we have this brief discourse on the way to the cross. But two Sundays from now, we'll see the triumphal entry on the first Sunday of Advent, the prophecy candle of the Advent wreath, the fulfillment of Zechariah where we were last year. We'll see that in two weeks. I'm excited about it. I'm excited about it. But but the quiet before the the storm here gives us a chance to, to pause before we get to these passion narratives and reflect on the person of Jesus and ask the question that I think the text demands we ask. How must we respond? You know, like, so what do we do about this person of Jesus? 
But we have to understand that that question of what are we to do about the person of Jesus is inextricably bound up with the question, how then must we live in this world? You know, like, how must we respond? By faith. Okay, so like John is shepherding his readers to a proper response to Jesus, and what we see at the front end of this text is faith. Faith, but even in this text we see we will simply never on our own strength and by our own means respond rightly in the quandary. Respond to Jesus in the way that's needed. We will not choose the word over the world. And so it's knowing this. So then how? Here's how. Now the Passover was at hand. Like Jesus came into the world he created. The world he knew would reject him. The world he knew would report him to the Pharisees. The world he knew would stand against him. Would see him as enemy. Would plot to kill him. He came into that world in order to die for those killing him. In order to die for those enemies. That we might not perish. That we might actually have life in him. To make enemies friends. To give us a seat at his table. To wash away our sins. His body broken, his blood shed. Taking the punishment we deserved. Coming to us by grace because we were unable to come to him, unable and unwilling every day of the week to come to him. But now through this act of death by love, we can respond by faith. We can respond by faith. We can respond rightly. And not only so, but through his death on our behalf and new resurrected life, we can now live in a way that, guys, now in our time, we don't have to respond to the world out of fear of its approval for us. We don't have to constantly be so concerned about our reputation and our cool factor. We don't need the reputation of a surrounding world. Why? Because of the cross. Because we have all the approval that we need bound up at the cross. We have all the approval we need in Jesus. The Father looks at us and we are approved by him. Why would we need the approval of the world? And so we're able to then tactfully, lovingly, but truthfully and, and with strength proclaim the truth in a world knowing that, yes, there's going to be long and lasting consequences socially and culturally, but in the end, God will have his way. And that's our prayer as a church. It's our prayer as his people, that God would so overwhelm our hearts with the grace of Christ that we would stand resolutely for his word in this world. So let's pray for that even now. God, you are the one through whom this is possible, and so we come to you and we plead with you. God, help us to apply the gospel. Help us to apply this good news. Help us to think and remember the grace that you've shown us, the reality that you've entered the, the, the world you created that was rebelling against you to die for the rebels, and that that was us. And help us to see that this is grace alone, through faith alone, and in, in the substitutionary work of Christ alone, that we might, Lord, be able to live in a way that doesn't just live and die for the approval of the world, but instead, Lord, we're able to take up our cross with joy and follow you. We're able to take up, up our cross. Truly, Lord, we know that in this time there will be be consequences, ramifications for how we live. But we need your strength. We need your, your, your gospel graces. We need gospel remembrance. We need one another in your body so that together we can, we can live according to your word, stand for it, call others to it. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.